So there's two simple things we're going to see this morning. Number one, we're going to see the final judgment. And then number two, we're going to see the blessings that await those who enter into eternal life. So nothing all that fancy, the final judgment and the blessings of those who enter into eternal life. So when Jesus was on earth, he said, the time is coming when the dead will hear my voice and everyone will come out of the grave. And then he said, God the Father has given all judgment to me. And so right from the beginning, it became clear that Jesus Christ is the last day's judge. He taught that. The apostles embraced that. When Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 10, he said, God commanded us to tell you that he is going to judge everyone through Jesus Christ. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead. And this is why early on people put together like these creedal statements. And I totally get what Rich is saying. You can just blah, blah, blah. You can say a creed without thinking about it. But if you say the Apostles' Creed and think about it, there is a point where you go, I believe in Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, and buried, third day arose from the dead. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And then later we say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and everlasting life. So what this passage is going to do is going to show us exactly what that, what that judgment looks like. It's a court scene. And then after that, it's going to say, and then I'm going to show you what the new world's going to be like for those of you who enter in. But then he's also going to say at the end, and I'm going to show you what the new world's going to be like for those of you who don't enter in. And it, pardon my slang, but it ain't pretty. All right? So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And we really want to grow. We want to understand what's happening here. And we want to be prepared for it, as Benjamin just asked, are you ready? So would you speak through your word to our hearts? And may you also be with those in Afghanistan who are struggling and suffering. We pray that the gospel will spread throughout this world and that we as believers will stand firm in American culture. We pray for our president, that you will turn him and our leaders towards godliness we pray that Christians would be revived in our culture and that we would live godly lives so that we can make an influence. Father, we pray for parents and children who are trying to raise their kids in a godless world. We pray for those who are suffering today, even in our church, those who are sick and lonely and depressed and um, frustrated and out of money and having marital problems and all of those things that Christians experience. Would you give them your peace? And may your word just continue to spread. We pray for our meeting tonight. May it be encouraging. And we pray for those who are being baptized, like Rich and these other two um, ladies that are getting baptized. May they be blessed and encouraged. And may you draw others to follow Christ as well. And we give you praise and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So last week we said there's different views of when this millennium and what does this mean? Some people believe that after Jesus comes back, there will be a thousand-year millennium on this earth. Other people believe that we're in this millennium now and that Jesus comes back. So the timing of this next event, I want you to remember this term. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. This is the only place in the Bible where it's described as a Great White Throne Judgment. This is the final judgment. This is the one that you see all the movies. Everyone's lined up for miles. 
So let's begin in chapter 20, verse 11. Now again, my view is this takes place at the second coming. Some people would say this takes place after the thousand-year millennium. That's not as important as what's going to happen. So he says, I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it. Now, this is really interesting. Him who sat upon it, he doesn't name him, but I'm going to suggest it has to be Jesus, because Jesus said, all judgment is given to me. He says, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. So, so that's kind of curious. The judge gets up, and you would think people would run away. We saw that earlier in the book at the return of Christ. People will go, hide us from the Lamb. But John says, here, people didn't run away. Creation itself ran away. All of a sudden, I look, and there goes the Bahamas running by me. There goes Mount, you know, Kilimanjaro. There goes the ocean. Why? Where's everybody going? I think this is a figurative way of explaining, first, the awesomeness of Christ, but also the fact that at this event, God is going to completely annihilate this cosmos or creation. This is really important for us to realize, that at the end of this age, 2 Peter 3 says, all of the elements will be burned up with an intense heat, like God is going to completely incinerate the universe. He's not going to give it a little makeover. He's going to annihilate it. And so this is the background for what's coming. Then he says he's going to make a new heaven and earth. So Jesus sits on the throne. Whoosh, creation's annihilated. Now he says, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Now before we talk about what's going to happen to them. Look at verse 13. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. So, in essence, right now, there's a lot of people still alive, but there's a whole lot of people who have already passed. Like Beethoven, when they were um, exhuming his casket and they heard a scratching noise, they found him erasing music because he was decomposing. People, listen carefully, this is important. People, when they die, decompose, okay? That's biblical. That's not a joke. God said, from the, from the dust you came to the dust you will return, okay? But God is going to resurrect each one of us. He's not going to mix us up like Mr. Potato Head. Wrong. That's not my nose. Where, oh, I put the wrong ear on them. I know there's lots of questions. What if you were eaten by a shark and your arms in the Atlantic and your legs in the Pacific in a great way? Doesn't matter. What if, you know, worms? It doesn't matter. God is going to resurrect. What if you were cremated? The Bible doesn't clearly forbid that. So it doesn't matter. What it does teach is this. No matter how you die, where you die, when you die, whether you're burned, beaten, die in your sleep, the Bible says that you will be resurrected. So John sees all of humanity standing before the throne. There's seven billion on the planet now. Imagine how many people this is. But then it says books were opened. Books? Yeah. And then another book was opened. Now these allusions come from the book of Daniel. 
In the book of Daniel, he describes a great judgment scene in chapter 7. He says books were open. And then in chapter 12, he talks about a special book that was open. Now, that ought to pique your curiosity. Hmm, so there's going to be books there? Are they law books? Well, look what it tells us. It says the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. I'm not a big fan of long meetings. Anybody here like long meetings? Somebody would said long committees and meetings take good ideas and drag them in a back alley and choke them to death. But they have to happen because we have to have um, interaction. But one of the things that we have to do is record those meetings. And do you know there are actually creatures on this planet who like doing that? So when someone goes, does anyone want to take minutes? I put my hands on the floor. I don't even want them to think that I want to take minutes. There are actually people that enjoy that, and that's a blessing, and we're grateful for that. And it's good to have accurate minutes. But I want you to imagine if God was in a meeting, said, God, would you take the minutes? He'd be like, I got that. Because God has a perfect, unfailing memory. Now, when, when the Bible says God's going to open the book of our deeds and judge us according to our deeds, and he says it again in verse 13, how do you feel about that? You're like, wait, nobody knows about that. I never told anyone. I mean, I never killed anyone. Every single thought, motive, deed will be exposed before God. And no matter how much we deceive ourselves into thinking, well, I'm not as bad as that guy, like that ought to, that ought to raise a little bit of concern, right? That God has a perfect record of my end. What were you doing September 19th, 2015? How would I know? It's December 19th, 2000. He does. Matter of fact, he knows exactly what you were thinking at 952. Suddenly, all of our deeds are going to be brought before God. Now, why would he do that? Almost seems kind of cruel, right? Like, are you serious? Here's why I think he's going to do that. Because there are way too many people who have deceived themselves into thinking that I got this. When I get before God, I'm going to tell him all the good things I've done. And so I think the reason why he's going to expose our deeds is so that no one at the end will go, see? That's why you should let me into heaven. Because he's going to go, really? I should let you into heaven after this, 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 this? Let me give you an illustration. If you went to court and you had 40 tickets, some of you are like, how do you know my story? Pastor, you're talking right to me. I hope none of you had 40 tickets. But if you went to court and you showed 40 tickets and you had this massive fine and you said to the judge, but I'll come to your house every Sunday. Um, I'll give you $5. I'll even sing a song to you. He would look at you like you're mad because he would say, what does that have to do with your debt and the justice that your debt requires? So the thought that somehow when we get before God and these books are open that I'm going to pull out my wallet or tell him all the good things that I did ought to cause me to go, that's probably not going to be a good idea. And you say, well, pastor, this sounds kind of hopeless. It would be 
were it not for that. And we're coming to that. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Wait, what? Hades is the Greek word for hell. How could hell give up the dead which are in them? I thought when people go to hell, it's, it's eternal. Not exactly. Hell is where people go when they die if they're not believers. So right now there are real souls of people who are in hell. But that's not their final destiny. You go, they get another chance? Nope, they don't get another chance. They're taken out of Hades. They stand before God. And then they're put into the permanent lake of fire. And then Hades is thrown in the lake of fire. So please hear that carefully. There's no second chance. But the people who are already in hell, even they will be resurrected. And then look at verse 14. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And then John uses a weird phrase. He goes, this is the second death, the lake of fire. What does he mean by the second death? Well, the Bible has various meanings for the word death. The word death always has the concept of being separated from God in some way. So, when God told Adam, the day you eat from the tree, you're going to die, he didn't fall over of a heart attack, but he became separated from God, and we call that spiritual death. And that's how we're born. When you're born... The Bible says you and I are born dead in our sins. In other words, if I'm a cell phone, there's no service between me and God. We're not connected because I'm dead in my sins. You say, but I prayed a lot. Doesn't matter. You're dead in your sins. That's what the Bible says. And until God makes you alive, you're going to stay dead in your sins. The second type of death is physical death. We're born, we cry, little babies, we grow up. We reach the peak of the hill, we come down the other side of the hill, and then we die. And that's physical death. That's when our body and our soul are separated. So the Bible says in James 2, the body without the spirit is dead. So we're born physically dead. I mean, spiritually dead. We expire, and then we're physically dead. But then there's a third piece. Then we go to the judgment, the final judgment. And those who were not Christians are then placed in a lake of fire. And this is called the second death. And it lasts forever. And it's still a form of separation from God. This separation from God is eternal separation in conscious punishment forever. Trust me when I tell you, you don't want to experience the second death. You say, well, how do I avoid the second death? Ready for this? Through a second birth. You go, what do you mean? This is why Jesus came to earth. He said, you must be born again. Great recall. When you were born, you were born defective. You were born sinful. You were born corrupt. You were born evil. But I came into this world to die and rise again, to give you forgiveness of sins and to put my spirit in you and change your heart. Anybody in? And we come and we're born again. And when you're born again, you're connected again with God. And you're given eternal life. And you ready for this? You only have to die once, physically. So somebody came up with a clever quip. They said, if you're only born once, you have to die twice, 
physically, and then the second death. But if you're born twice, born and then born again, you only have to die once. Only thing is, he didn't take that through to the end because there will be a generation who goes, I was born twice and I don't even have to die at all. Come Lord Jesus. Anybody else want that? I'd be glad. Some of you are wondering what I mean by that. If the Lord comes and you're a believer, you don't even have to die at all. We just get a new body. I mean, some of you are like, no, I want to have a morbid martyr's death. Why? Don't you want the Lord to come in your life? Man, that's a tough crowd. Morbid today. <laughs> Maybe you didn't understand. So, when you're witnessing to someone, don't just read them Romans 3.23. The wages of sin is death. Because they have no idea what that means. I mean the wages of sin is death. Do you think you're going to surprise them? Do you think they're going to go, wait, so what you're saying here is, I'm going to die? Do you think people don't know that they're going to die? I'm pretty sure they know that. What they don't know is when the Bible says the wages of sin is death, it's the second death. It's a death after this world that lasts forever. That raises the stakes a little bit. And of course nobody wants to talk about that. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses and we're going to speak to them about sin and judgment. How much do you have to hate someone not to warn them of the coming second death? Well, what if they laugh at me? Well, they might laugh at you. What if they say, I'm going to go down in the lake of fire and sell ice cream? Well, they may say that, but at least we try to lovingly tell them the truth of the gospel, amen? And we pray, we talk to God and ask God to give us a chance to talk to them. So, but here's an encouraging word, verse 15. If your name is not found written in the book of life, you're thrown into the lake of fire. Wait, there's another book? And you're saying if my name's in that book, I don't have to go in there? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's it. You got it. In fact, earlier in the book, it's called the book of the life of the Lamb. Wait, it's, it's a book of the life of the Lamb? Jesus? Yes. And in fact, John did not introduce this idea. Way back when the disciples were casting out demons, they were pretty excited about that. Jesus said, here's power, boom, go out and cast out demons. And it says they came back, Luke chapter 10, and they were rejoicing that the demons were subjected to them. Can you imagine, you know, like when they do on The Chosen, kind of gets, you know, they try to bring a little bit of imagination. Imagine John going, you should have seen one time I got two of them with one shot. Peter's like, that's nothing, I got one behind my back, get out, right? And Jesus pulls him aside, he goes, don't rejoice because you can cast out demons. Rejoice because your name's in the book of life. Gives you great perspective. You look at your life, you go, my life stinks. Why does God hate me? Why are all these terrible things happening? And then, then you read the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. I don't feel like rejoicing in the Lord. So in Philippians 4, Paul says, finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And then he says, rejoice along with all of our fellow companions whose names are in the book of life. A friend of mine told me that he was driving a teenager home one day. The teenager said, I have no friends. It's a true story. He said, I have no friends. My parents don't talk to me. A, you know, my life is awful. The only friend I have is a dog. As he pulled in the driveway, thump, thump true story. What could be more painful than that, right? And yet, no matter what thump thump we experience in this world, one thing's certain if you're a Christian, your name is written in the book of life. Would you give that up? 
just so you could have some comfort and pleasure? Would you give that up for a pot of gold? Jesus said, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? So, you might be asking, how do I get my name in the book of life? Well, not because of your deeds, but because of his grace. The wonderful grace of Jesus. When he hung on the cross and he shed his blood and he bore the payment for our sin, he didn't say, Lord, I'm going to die for all those good people out there. The Bible says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So the first way to qualify for the book of life is to admit that you're a rotten sinner. You might not be the worst sinner, but you are a sinner. Number two, to admit that you cannot deserve, earn, or purchase, or pay for your salvation. And number three, be willing to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. The moment you trust in the living Christ who died and rose again. The Bible says, Jesus says, when you hear my words and you believe, you will not come into condemnation. You have passed from death to life. Now, I like what Rich said. You don't need to know when you did it. You don't have to go, did I trust Jesus on March 7th or April 6th? It doesn't matter when you did. What matters is that you did. And that while you're sitting there right now, you go, I am trusting Jesus. I am I am taking my soul and I'm strapping it to the cross and I'm gone with him and I'll cling to that old rugged cross. And may God open your eyes. If you've never done that, may you understand even this morning that it's all by God's grace. And Jesus doesn't say, ah, you don't qualify. He says, whoever comes to me, I won't cast them out, so come. But most of us, I hope, have already done that. What awaits us? Okay, that's the judgment. Now comes the blessing that we look forward to. You want to know what's going to happen? Are there going to be aliens? You know, um, or the youth group says, in God's big, big house, I'm going to play football. And I go, please stop. Let's just read what the Bible says. Look at verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. So it's not a makeover. This is brand new. The entire cosmos, all of those stars that are twinkling, twinkling, gone, cooked, incinerated, dissolved. And now God creates this new heaven and new earth. Is it going to have a Grand Canyon? I don't know. Will there be fishing? I hope. Will there be deep sea fishing? No. Why not? Look what it says. There is no longer any sea. What? One good thing is on Jeopardy, all those geography questions, I won't have to name the Baltic Sea. But, but here's why. And this is really interesting as I studied this. I hadn't thought as deeply on this. But the sea in the Old Testament, as well as in the book of Revelation, the sea has a lot of negative connotations. First of all, in Revelation, the sea is the origin of evil. In chapter 13, it says, I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Right? And, and we saw that's the devil and the Antichrist. Number two, um, the sea represents those unbelieving, rebellious nations who cause trouble for God's people. In chapter 17, the sea represents evil unbelievers. We just saw that the sea is the place of the dead. And, that sea gave up the dead which were in them. It gets worse. 
The sea is the primary location of the world's trade. Um, this, this comes out of Greg Beale's commentary. I thought, wow, how insightful. In chapter 18, as he describes the destruction of the, of the world system, all the merchants of the sea are crying because, wow, all of our opulence. And yet what's really cool is as God wipes away this evil sea, the sea is pictured as in turmoil. It's muddy and cloudy and tossed around. When God removes this sea, the new creation, there will be no more threat from Satan who came out of the sea. There will be no more threat from rebellion nations, rebellious nations. There will be no more death out of which came out of the sea. There will be no more idolatrous practices of trade, and this murky, unruly part of God's creation is gone. What's cool is there will be water. There will be a river of crystal clear water flowing from his throne. There will be a sea of glass because it's calm, it's peaceful, like that canoe on a tranquil main pond in the evening. And some of you are going, there's nothing tranquil about being outside in the evening in Maine. Mosquitoes everywhere. There will be no more mosquitoes. That's in the Greek. There's, there will be nothing that will bring us pain. So, someone once say, said this, seas separate nations. Where was John right now? On the island of Patmos. The sea was even separating him from being with his church. I thought that was a great insight from Greg Beale. But now he goes on and he describes not just a new cosmos, but then he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So a heavenly city coming down. This is what probably inspired John Bunyan to write partly about Pilgrim's Progress, because where was Pilgrim headed? It wasn't called the heavenly city. It's a celestial city. There's this theme throughout Scripture that there's a, a city of God on the other side of eternity, which all the people of God will enter into. In Hebrews 11, even Abraham, it says, Abraham was looking for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I'm going, really? I just thought Abraham was looking for a piece of land that God was going to give him some real estate. So, so throughout the history of planet Earth, people were looking for God to build this new city this permanent, lasting city. This is part of what inspired St. Augustine to write the city of God. Well, what would this city look like? He calls it a new Jerusalem. In fact, Paul began to see this as he, as he wrote the book of Galatians. He talked about the earthly Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 talks about the Jerusalem above. So there's this city of God up there, and when we're asking God, let your kingdom come to this earth, God's going to bring in this new creation with this new dwelling. And the next two chapters are going to describe this in great detail. And he describes it as a bride made ready, and, and we're going to learn that he's going to toggle back and forth between this being a place and it being the people themselves are part of this temple and this city. But then he says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle, no, not the temple, the tabernacle, this is the Greek word for a tent, of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, 
and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Now, this is a really cool verse, because way back in Deuteronomy, when God, or Exodus, rather, when God called his people and created this nation, and through Moses brought them out of the wilderness, he goes, build a tabernacle that I may dwell among you. But in that case, it was his invisible presence, symbolized by the fire and, and the cloud. But now, in the new Jerusalem, God's coming down, and he literally will dwell on earth uh, with us. And he will be our God, and we shall be his people. It's such a cool thought that God himself will be with us. John said it back in chapter 7, we're going to serve him day and night. He who sits in, on the throne will spread his tabernacle over us. But you know what's interesting? In the Old Testament, God would, would, would always say it this way, I will be your God to the Jews, and you will be my people. And it was always in singular because it emphasized the Jews. But here, it's in the plural. They will be his peoples. Because from the beginning, it was never God's desire to single out the Jews solely, but to select the Jews as a conduit to reach the nations. The Abrahamic covenant was, and I will bless you, and all the Jews will be blessed through you. It's all the nations will be blessed. And so what a cool thought to think that in this new Jerusalem, this new heaven and earth, God will be among all the nations will be there, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And I know some of you are going, yeah, we're going to speak Korean, or we're going to speak Hebrew, or we're going to speak French, or we're going to speak, I don't know, but it's going to be great. <clears throat> And then John's going to talk about what there won't be there. And this is so encouraging. All those things that have pained us, all those things that have afflicted us. In 22, he's going to say, there's no longer any curse. And because of the curse, there are so many people who have a terrible view of God simply because they, they go, if God is real, what's wrong with him? I just was talking to my neighbor. He goes, I gave up on God. He must not care. What's he doing down here? But what they don't understand, it's not God who who's hates people. This earth is cursed because of sin, but when that curse is removed, it's going to be great. Look at verse 4. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every blessed tear that we've shed from a skinned knee to a lost loved one, to a depressed heart, to the shame of our sins, he shall wipe away every tear. There shall no longer be any death. Why did God create death? It's temporary. He will solve this once for all. There shall no longer be any mourning. You're like, I won't, I won't be depressed anymore. Guaranteed, you won't be depressed anymore. There will be no crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now, real quick, I do want you to note this when it says, the first things have passed away. You say, well, what about my loved ones? How can I be happy if my loved ones aren't in heaven? Isaiah 65, God says, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Somehow, when we're with God and we're glorified, we're not going to have this overwhelming depression if one of our loved ones isn't there. I don't understand it, but I believe it. And then John says this, right, for these words are faithful and true. God says, I am making all things new. And then in verse 6, it's done. Way back in chapter 16, when he described pouring out his wrath, 
He goes, it's done. That was a focus on judgment. Now he's pouring out his blessings. He goes, it's done. Focusing on God's blessings. And here it is again. These are the, these words are faithful, true. Remember, these are the true words of God. This, well, how much does John have to tell us? Believe this stuff. Bank on it. Bet your soul on it. Come hell or high water. Let them beat it out of us. But we believe the Bible is the word of God and let them hate us, hurt us, harm us. One day God will show that his word is the absolute truth. And we trust it no matter what everybody else says. And then God gives us this wonderful invitation. I'll give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. I'll freely give to all who thirst. And he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And you can imagine the first century saints going, what does he mean by he who overcomes? What does he mean by he who overcomes? I think it's pretty simple. The Christian life isn't over. We're still here on earth. And if you made a profession in Christ, if you're a Christian... Pardon me for spilling half my... So if you're a Christian, God wants you to, to hold on to that profession in your beliefs and in your behavior. And if you turn back and you renounce that and you go, this is too hard, I don't want to do this, I'm done, I don't believe in God. If you're a Christian, God's not going to let you do that because he's going to discipline you to deal with you. But if you're not a Christian... Therein lies the evidence. Those who persevere will be saved. And so John's saying, and Jesus is saying, I know it's hard. I know the way is narrow. But fix your hope on what's coming and ask God to give you the grace. Many of you know Jeremy. His granddad just died. I was talking to Jeremy's father. He goes, my dad was always, you know, sure of heaven. But boy, as he got close, I've never seen him so sure Never seen him so certain. Never seen him going, I'm going to be with Jesus. That's how we need to pray that we die. So let me share three thoughts that we're out of here. Number one, God has a good memory. You're like, why do you have to leave me on a bad note? I'm not. I got a better note. But he says, if you come to Christ, your sins I will remember no more. Hallelujah. Lord, you'll press the delete button. And he doesn't just erase them. He remembers that Christ. So don't go out of here if you're a Christian going, oh my word, God knows every single sin I ever did. If you're a Christian, he goes, I will remember them no more. You say to God, remember that sin I got? He goes, no, I promised you. So that should lift me up and make me want to sin no more because he remembers my sins no more. Second, let's ask God to help us hold to our confession, remain true to our character. Don't lose hope during the present because we remember the future. And finally, Peter says this. He goes, look, go back and read 2 Peter 3. He says, since the whole universe is going to melt with an intense heat, and God's going to start this whole thing over, and we look for this new heaven in which righteousness dwells, he goes, what kind of people should we be right now? What kind of people should we be right now if we believe that the new heavens and the new earth are coming? He said, we should be people that are hastening the coming of the day of God, that we're praying for it and we're living that way and we're begging others to come with us. We were, we were teasing uh, Pastor Andy when, or um, Elder Andy when he said, don't drag people to church. Drag people to church, but also witness to them. Bring people 
plead with people. Time is short, but we know how the story ends. Amen? Thank you so much, dear Lord. Your word is so helpful, so hopeful. So would you help us to be encouraged? Thank you that our names are in the book of life. If there's anyone here that's not sure, let us help them trust in Christ. Help us to disciple those who are doubting. And Father, thank you that there are so many who are in such pain today, but one day that pain will be gone. Give us hope for those who are grieving the loss of loved ones. Give us hope. For those who are confused and depressed and anxious, give them hope. And thank you, Lord, that we can bear one another's burdens. So help us to come alongside our brothers and sisters and help to share their burden, knowing that one day all our burdens will be gone. In Jesus' name, amen.